You are listening to Labor Wave Radio. This episode of Labor Wave is a special recap of different highlights from various interviews and speeches that were given in season two of our show. You'll be hearing audio from interviews we did with Bill Fletcher Jr., a labor historian and activist, Marion Garneau, the editor of Organizing Work, Shane Burley, an organizer and journalist based in Portland, Oregon, Hilary Lazar, a writer and activist based in Pittsburgh, who has also done organizing work for the Graduate Student Union at University of Pitt, A.K. Thompson, a writer and activist who is the recent author of the collection of essays titled Premonitions, published by A.K. Press, and Adrian Mary Brown, who gave the keynote speech at Opening Space for the Radical Imagination 2, hosted in Corvallis, Oregon. We are going to be introducing new episodes of The Labor Wave in Season 3 over the summer of 2019, so stay tuned for updates and pay attention to our website as well as our SoundCloud page for when these episodes are released. first clip we are going to feature is with Marion Garneau, the editor of Organizing Work. In this discussion, she talks about her critique of the women's strike and specifically the book Feminism for the 99%, which was collaboratively written by Nancy Fraser, Chintia Rutza, and Titi Bhattacharya. Marion Garneau's critique in this discussion specifically lands on the lack of a strategy and a plan that can be executed and actually strike at the level of reproductive labor. When the clip begins, Marion Garneau begins to speak about the left's tendency towards symbolism and symbolic actions without any actual material impacts. One thing that I see all the time is what I jokingly call like social democracy with red and black flags where, where people 
speak a very militant anti-capitalist line, but they are completely at a loss for what to do strategically, right? So they don't know how to build working class power and they don't have the experience or practical guidance to start with something small and measurable. And so they just run out into the streets and scream their uh, opposition to capitalism and to uh, the capitalist state. And there's really effectively no difference between that and what the left loves to malign, like things like the pussyhat marches, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, calling your representative in Congress and voicing your dissent or disagreement with their policy position. And so the left, in trying to dissociate itself from uh, social democracy and boring electoral politics ends up actually copying those methods, which is just making a moral argument against the badness of the system or the badness of a particular policy. And I think that that probably has to do with the way that any real system of building working class power in the form of unions, as we've talked about, or in the form of tenant associations or or in the form of uh, student uh, unions or associations, have been thoroughly undermined and destroyed. And so where you lack that tradition and lack that institutional knowledge and that capacity to build those kinds of organs of working class power, you end up reaching for more symbolic efforts. And on those lines of like actions without demands and lack of strategic content, you argue that the ambiguity of the tactic of the international women's strike suits capitalism just fine. You have a whole reason for elaborating that claim. So why is the lack of demands tolerable for neoliberal capitalism? If there is nothing measurable you're going after and no one in particular you're asking for it from, then there, and there's no timeline and there's no specificity to this, then they can just continue ignoring you, right? And you can continue making your demands and they can continue ignoring you. And there's no um, time frame or benchmark where that has to end. And so it suits capitalism perfectly fine for people to move into this position of making symbolic opposition to the system rather than concrete steps forward. So you were in the article talking a lot about after the criticism, like how do we actually address some of these limitations of what the international women's strike is calling for? And two of the things that you ask is, one, how does a women's strike actually work? And two, who are the actual targets of a women's strike? And you write that, quote, if I strike in a workplace, my intention is for my employer to lose those profits forever. If I strike my reproductive labor, say to attend the women's strike, it will either create a backlog of work, dishes, shopping for me to do later, or that work will have to be devolved onto someone else paid or unpaid, end quote. So with that, I wanted to ask you two questions. One, who should be the targets for reproductive labor demands? And two, can reproductive strikes even work at all in challenging women's oppression under capitalism? And if not, what can? That I think is a huge question and it's not one with easy answers and it's not one that I pretend to have the answers to either. And what I find lacking in this particular book is any serious attempt at an answer. So what I see in the book is the author saying, look, you know, these uh, strikes that have, these, these social strikes or mass strikes or feminist strikes that have taken place in South America and in Europe have simultaneously been reproductive labor strikes because 
women that day allegedly are saying, we're not going to do any housework. We're not going to do uh, what, whatever it is, childcare, dishes, ironing, cooking, shopping, emotional labor. Um, we are going to abstain not just from our paid work, but from our unpaid work, which just as much sustains capitalism. Now, I completely agree that that unpaid work just as much sustains capitalism. It's part of the reproduction of society without which capitalism would have no workers to employ. Um, there wouldn't be anything at all. So I completely agree about the value of that work. But yeah, the question is, how do you strike it? Because as I say, and as you quoted, so I, I myself am a, a stay-at-home mom right now. If I don't do that work, it either just piles up waiting for me for when I go back to it, which is what I suspect happens in a lot of the cases of these women's strikes, or maybe at best, I devolve it onto, let's say, my husband or another family member. Well, that's just another person doing unpaid work. If, if my husband picks up that slack, maybe if he was a particularly obtuse person, he now understands how much I actually do and what my contribution is to society. And there may be instances where that happens. But for the most, I mean, for, for me personally, my husband is not an obtuse person that way. I'm not making any headway by just handing that reproductive labor over to him. And more to the point, capitalism does not care. It doesn't care who picks up that slack and who does that reproductive labor. It's not really a strike. It's going to get done either way. You know, and, and as I point out, the people who command our reproductive labor, whether they're our children or our aging parents or our six spouses or the community, we don't actually have an oppositional relationship to them. We're not trying to make them suffer. Suffer. We don't want to withhold that labor from them completely. We might hand it off to someone else. I may give my children to someone else to take care of them, either paid or unpaid, but I'm not trying to get my children not taken care of for four hours while I'm participating in a women's march. So that, that doesn't necessarily imply it's impossible to strike reproductive labor, but it's actually at least going to be a very different situation than striking paid labor. And it becomes a very complicated question, you know, what that strike is, how it operates, who it's hurting or trying to hurt strategically, and who it's exacting um, concessions from. Our next clip features Shane Burley, uh, organizer and journalist based in Portland, Oregon. Shane Burley wrote a number of articles tracing the successes and accomplishments of the Burgerville Workers' Union, the first recognized fast food workers' union in the country of the United States. And in our discussion, Shane discusses what he sees as some of the key lessons that can be imparted from tracing the story of the Burgerville Workers' Union for the broader labor movement. I mean, I think there's a really big period of discovery of what a union can be like in a new environment and what it can be like today. And, you know, you'll see lots of these um, union leaders talking about innovative things. And they're not always something that I would necessarily celebrate. Uh, where, you know, uh, management, labor partnerships, uh, NGO-style advocacy, um, very vague benefits programs. Um, and that's not what a labor union is founded on. But I am really excited about the idea of doing something completely new. 
And so I think in a way what the IWW and the Burger Workers Union does, and a lot of projects and what they call alt-labor do this, is the alternative labor movement stuff, is stripping organizing down to its bare essentials and figuring out how to use it in a new context. And I think that's what we're seeing now. So what we see now is the, the kind of um, the fractured workplaces that we exist in now. People change workplaces more. They move more. They do gig economies, uh, precarious work, freelancing, all these sorts of things don't have the ability to have a union contract in the way they traditionally have. But if we strip organizing down to the bare essentials and we um, find ways of approaching these issues using that real key organizing spirit and we can do it in all kinds of different ways. And I think we open up the door to how we can basically establish a labor movement for a completely different kind of economy. It's about maintaining the principles and the essentials though. We have to really figure out what those essential key parts are. And I don't think in the end it's a grievance procedure in the contract necessarily, but it really is like that solidarity between workers uh, using collective action to solve problems. And so I think there's implications for all kinds of workplaces, um, keeping people in the labor movement. There's lots of implications there. I think uh, going after uh, precarious work and freelance, there's a lot of options there. You know, I am um, one of the things that I do, I organize as a freelance writer um, is uh, very recently. Um, with the Writers Guild, a freelancer organizing project where they just talk about issues and how to go after them. It's really that simple. What are the issues people have? What are possible solutions for them? And so I think in a way, we're trying to figure out how to apply those principles all across the board. And if we can create a good structure for that, even better. Um, but I think right now we have to be in that period where we figure out exactly what it means to have that worker power, what the essential components of are, and how we can port that to a whole range of different situations. I wanted to ask this question. I don't imagine that you really have much of a prediction or uh, answer for it, but do you think that this means today that the IWW is coming back? Like, are we seeing the reemergence of the IWW or other forms of like more militant unionism? And are sure. they going to stick around? I mean, the IWW has grown. Um, I think that the IWW, this is only one of a few things. I mean, so the IWW's incarcerated workers organizing committee, organizing people inside prisons around prison issues. Um, I think that's really important. The IWW is also organizing freelance writers, um, and a lot of people are joining um, around those issues. Um, the General Defense Committee, which is the IWW kind of a community partnership wing that goes after anti-oppression issues, issues that might affect communal members, uh, particularly going after protecting people from, from fascist organizations, white nationalist organizations and neighborhoods, but also housing issues, other kinds of stuff. The IWW has opened up in a lot of ways to what a union can do in different contexts. And uh, while that gets criticized as sort of like a postmodern union, I actually think we're in postmodern times and that's really useful because it's about just figuring out those bare essentials. So like um, uh, people incarcerated are workers. They perform work in that workplace um, and they're in marginalized situations. And that collective action, that union still can be powerful. Tenants unions are still powerful unions of people coming together, figuring out their key role in that institution and finding power there. And so I think that the IWW is really set to be able to do that. And whether or not it does kind of blow up in that way, I think is up to how successful those organizing efforts are. And it's also not just the IWW. I think lots of unions actually are looking at ways of trying to, to to reattach themselves to the militant tactics at work. So teachers unions are the best example. 
In a lot of places where the recent teacher strikes happened, they were illegal. They essentially had no strike clauses. They were set in law rather than a contract because in a lot of those states, it's illegally illegal to collectively bargain. So they went on strike anyway. And I think they, they looked at what these legal restraints were, realized that they weren't going to get anywhere by just following the, the letter there and instead going with the old school tactics of worker power. And so I think right now we're all in a period of looking at what the key principles are and how can they be employed now? Because the all the things that we were given, all the things we want are being slowly whittled away and we can't rely on them. Our next audio clip is an interview featuring Hilary Lazar. Hilary Lazar is the author of an essay that is featured in the Perspectives on Anarchist Theory journal put out by the Institute for Anarchist Studies. And in this essay, she discusses the trials of Ferrero, Salido, and Graham, who were editors of the early 20th century anarchist journal called Man, and were racialized and almost deported for their political activism and anarchism. Hilary Lazar discusses how this history can inform and should inform some of our organizing struggles and analysis for today, where nothing less than border abolition and the abolition of the nation state entirely is necessary. One of the things that I really wanted to illustrate in the piece is not just that man was suppressed, is not just that these trials happened, is not just that these mechanisms of control exist, is not just that we have to understand kind of the the racialized colonial project as as it uh, manifested in these cases and the suppression of this important anti-fascist voice, but also that there was this incredible movement for solidarity with those who are being persecuted. And that by connecting across space, across borders, that these folks were able to demonstrate that even in the, uh, even under the, the weight of that kind of political repression, that that they were still going to mobilize. They were going to provide Ferrero, Graham, and Salido with the support, that they were going to find ways for as long as they could to ensure that the publication got published, uh, and that they were going to challenge that type of state-based control, that they were going to literally take it to the streets, take it through petitions, uh, take it through running um, kind of media pieces through this huge uh, awareness campaign and that they were going to organize in their own local communities, these defense committees, right? That began to raise questions about these types of controls and this kind of impact on immigrant communities as well as radical voices. And, and so for me, it was very much also about highlighting the, the movement that sprung up around them as a, a message uh, for folks today, take, take heart, look, uh, these mechanisms have been in place for a long time, but they're also an opportunity for us to come together and begin to put pressure, pressure where it's, where it's needed. Um, and that in fact, that ultimately that this helped to forge connections across borders, right? It also helped to radicalize an entire new generation of organizers. Many of the people who were coming out at that time 
to do the defense work on behalf of Ferrero and Salido. We're doing so for the first time, right? I, I did another, an oral history um, with, with um, Audrey, uh, good friend who um, has, has since passed, uh, but was a really critical organizer in anarchist communities out in California. Um, even up until um, uh, when I, I, I met her in, in 2009, was very much in, engaged in, in local, uh, local organizing and, and anarchist reading groups and um, providing space to the community to come together in her house. And, um, and some of her earliest organizing work was as part of this committee. She remembered doing it as a, basically a, a young teen. And so, so um, even when we feel like uh, our efforts are in vain, you, don't, you may not know what the ripple effect is, is down, down the road. Um, and I would also say that, uh, hearkening back to what you were just saying in terms of, we can't just talk about reforms. What we have to do is expend our notion for what it means to provide um, support uh, for creating a more liberatory society as a whole. And that means adopting a more liberatory understanding and approach to immigrant solidarity. Um, and that we need to shift beyond kind of the, the logic of ensuring citizenship to challenging the st settler state uh, as a whole, right? Um, and, and so as we see in today's organizing, whether it's, um, whether it's doing support work for folks who are, are um, providing work for immigrant communities, who are being so harshly targeted by ICE, whether it's folks who are down at the border, um, like the, the folks who are right now, um, uh, who were just recently on trial for providing food for uh, folks who are trying to cross the border, whether it is um, anybody who's engaged uh, in, in kind of challenging the notion of, of detention, right, who are part of um, kind of uh, the abolish ice mobilizing, right? We, I, I think the term abolish is, is really critical. And, and even though some would say it's being co-opted, I think it's really important that, um, that we do shift to this perspective of uh, abolishment, abolishment of the settler colonial state, abolishment of this type of detention and these types of um, practices uh, that reforms that reforms won't truly ensure a fully liberatory society. We need to move beyond the logic of the settler state, and we need to move beyond the logic that, um, that, that we can ensure uh, true freedom by simply granting citizenship and deeming some as legal um, and allowed. Our next audio clip is from a presentation given by Adrian Mary Brown at the opening space for the Radical Imagination II conference, which took place in Corvallis, Oregon. In this keynote presentation, Adrian Mary Brown discusses the contents of her most recent work called Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. And this clip focuses specifically on how we can make pleasure central to our organizing practices. But I do think there's this idea of how do we build movement structures, organizing structures that actually feel good to be in? How do we learn to communicate so that it feels good to be with each other? 
And then how do we make that so compelling that other people, we're not going out and like trying to knock on their door, like, can I interest you in surviving in the future? <laughs> right? It's just sort of like, oh, we're over here just like having the best party, but if you want to come, you know, fight for justice with us, like, cool, right? It's a different invitation. And I'm definitely going to the twerking justice party, <laughs> right? Over the people who like door knock during my dinner. I'm like, hey, you're always coming. Don't you know what dinner is? You know, like, it's just like, no, right? They don't eat dinner because they're organizers. We don't eat. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about black liberation specifically because, you know, we need some up in here in Corvallis, <laughs> right? Um, and one of the things people often ask me is, as non-black people, as white folks, like, how can I, mm, and I think that mm, it's kind of like, how do I do right? How do I do this right? How do I show up well? How do I... We help rebalance all this from my positionality. And I love the question because I'm like, yeah, I don't know. We have, since we have not done this, <laughs> we don't fully know. But I do have some ideas. One is because currently most of our organizing of our society is around how we suffer, how we have common struggle. So even for black folks, we're like, you know, I'm like, hey, black people over there. Okay, I see you, and I just want you to know, we went through slavery, right? It was like whatever it is. It's like okay, like and and so for me, a big part of what I've been trying to change is like, hey, black people, if you look past all that, back before all that, there was some original space in which we were pleasure bodies, and we have a gorgeous, ancient, amazing lineage, and we know how to access pleasure but we may have forgotten, but we need to remember, right? So if we self-organize that way, then I think for folks who are non-black, is then they would have some permission, y'all would have some permission, to organize not around how do I protect you from further harm, because everything is harm, but instead, how do I create more space, and how do I redistribute more, so that you can have all the access to pleasure that you should have in your life, right? And to me, it, it's like a small shift, and it's a really radical big shift. Um, because, you know, so much of how oppression works is you don't think of oppressed people experiencing joy. So think about this, like, we think of the service people, right? I think often, like, you go into a place and you're getting a meal, there's service people coming and taking care of you. And how rarely I see people just look up and be like, hi, human, how are you doing? What are your dreams? Probably not just serving me this soup. What, what do you dream, Right? In the same way, we can begin to not see the full potential, the full lives, the full dreams, and the full pleasure potential of people who are more oppressed than us in whatever ways it is. So one of the first steps is, is literally just to imagine, oh, what would it look like if that person was totally, totally free? I have several people now who have reached out to me to be pleasure allies to my life. Right? They're like, I see you traveling a lot. I would like to support you by buying you a massage when you land. Like, I just was in Seattle. I came, I just got back from Thailand. I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, and so I was, like, super jet-lagged in Seattle. Was that five? How many times did I say it? So about six. Set in Thailand. Um, so, and someone reached out and was like, I'm going to cover for you to go to, like, sit in a bath. Sit in a bathhouse and, like, just get a massage, right? And it's something I wouldn't think of for myself. And then if I did think of it, I would be like, I can't afford to do that, Right? I can't prioritize that. There's people who want to meet with me and talk about political things. And instead, having someone reach out who's a white ally, who's like intentionally a white ally, white accomplice, you know, and is like, hey, 
I see that you might be tired. I can imagine you might be tired. I'm not going to be like, are you so tired? That must be so hard, right? Then we just focus on tired. Let's pick up our attention and move it to rest, balm, relaxation. I think about this a lot, but I'm like, if you're a white person, if you're a man, if you're a person with ability, how do you start to think about increasing the pleasure of folks who don't have access to that privilege? And I think of it systemically, right? So the example I gave was an individual one, and I'm like, that's great. How would we systematize that? I think about this a lot, right? Is that often when it comes to starting to do work around racial justice, the place we start off is, okay, let's get together and kind of shame each other into right behavior, right? We might do that through caucusing work, right? One of my favorite things is like when white folks are just with each other and like, I'm the wokest white person. No, I'm the wokest white person. No, I'm actually the wokest white person here. We don't even use that language anymore. Right? We all do this in our own, I just want to say, everyone's doing this in their own caucuses, but just so you know, it's happening everywhere. Um, but I'm like, oh, what is the usefulness of that, right? And then it's, there's often then, how do we find a black person who's willing to take time to educate us, or a person of some other background who's willing to educate us? And I find, like, what's happened with this person I was speaking of, that because her first way of interacting with me was just like, I see you, I don't need anything, I just want to offer something and you don't have to give me anything in return, like, it's just yours. And she continued to do that until I was like, I'm interested in you. <laughs> like, you're a white person I really want to talk to. You're not coming to extract anything additionally from me. You're just seeing me and being like, let me restore, let me give back, right? Now we're starting to build a really authentic relationship because I'm like, oh, I'm curious, how did you become the kind of white person who evolved beyond that extractive um, inheritance, right? Because I don't think, you know, it's like, I got a white mom, um, and I have a whole thus white side of my family, and I look at each of those individuals, and I'm like, none of these individuals are like, I was born, and as soon as I came out of the womb, I was just like, mm, racism, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, most white folks are like, I don't even know that that was a thing, and so, like, much later, I just wasn't seeing all of that. And so, so much of it is like, oh, I want you to see. I want you to see me. I want you to see that lineages of time have impacted me. I want you to see and want to shift that. And then I'm like, oh, if you see me, then I can see you, right? But if you can't see me, there's this invisible wall there that makes it really hard for me to even care to really look, right? And I see this happening now, fissuring our movements so deeply is that moments happen like the women's march. And it was like those white girls and their pink pussy hats. And then the white women are like, what? <laughs> this is awesome. We're like taking charge. Like, don't we all, don't all women want to do this thing? And it's like, oh, you're not seeing, right? Like, oh, we're not seeing each other both ways, right? But yesterday in Seattle, there was a, we did a rapid fire Q&A towards the end. And which meant people, they, people had written all these questions on cards pass them forward, and they were, like, giving to me, like, boom, boom, boom. So one of them was, like, what should white women do, you know, what should white women do? And I was, like, you know, I was, like, quiet listening. <laughs> and that's what just came from my heart, which is down here. <laughs> that came from my heart. <laughs> so I didn't take uh, anatomy. Um, but it was so deep to see that, oh, that's really what I believe, is, like, what does it actually mean to stop needing to say so much or prove so much with words and instead to really be like, 
you know, if I'm a white person or a person of privilege in relationship with someone who has less privilege, I make sure that our, our conversations are 70-30. That person is giving 70% of the content. I'm listening more than I'm talking. Right? It's like a simple attention practice. I give this to men all the time. I'm like, 90-10. <laughs> Just listen so much more. Right? It's extreme, but it helps because it's the, the tilt the other way has been so extreme. And I, it makes me, it breaks my heart, actually, whenever I see folks who are like, I'm a well-intentioned white person who even in my good intentions right now, as I'm telling you my good intentions, I haven't even asked you how you are, <laughs> right? Or if you have time to hear all that I'm giving you. And to be like, oh, I feel all the goodness of that, and I'm so spooned out, or whatever's happening, right? And I'm like, oh, how often is that happening? Just these tiny micro-fissures that keep us from then being able to be together and being together is what's necessary to actually feel pleasure together and actually feel free together, right? Our next clip features A.K. Thompson, who is the author of the recent book, Premonitions, Selected Essays on the Culture of Revolt, which was published by A.K. Press. In this clip, A.K. Thompson discusses one specific essay in the book wherein he challenges the left to see cultural production as a potential sphere for revolutionary organizing. When Marx talks about capitalism producing its own grave diggers, he's really thinking about it from the standpoint of production, you know, like the the creation of the ever-growing, you know, army of proletarians who come together in factories and discover their power at the point of production you know, they become the grave diggers and it's necessary for capitalism to produce them. But the way you said it, you're suggesting that the same thing might be happening in the sphere of consumption as well as in the sphere of production. I think, I think there might be something to that where when you think about the problem of profit for capital, it needs to maintain increased rates of consumption in order to complete the cycle, in order to realize profit out of surplus value, and then to be able to reinvest it. But in order to maintain ever-increasing consumption, you need to be perpetually stimulating desire. The kind of base-level use values required to reproduce a life are fairly easily met by the capitalist market, you know, but that can't be the end of it, obviously. Uh, the profit motive won't allow it. So capitalism at this stage needs to be perpetually stimulating desires and simultaneously suggesting that the consumption of the commodity is the only way to realize the desires. Now we know, of course, that there's this huge disconnect between the desires that capitalism stimulates and the promise of the commodities that we end up getting. Uh, I think like the experience of consumer remorse is the the obvious example of that, where people have fantasies of fulfillment that accompany them on shopping sprees, but then when they get the thing home that they bought, like they realize that it's just like a lump of stuff and that all of the desires that they had associated with its consumption end up not being resolved, right? And then they're just left with a fairly banal com commodity that might have some use value, but the use value doesn't correspond with the desire that had animated the consumption 
or the use value that they thought they would realize through identification with the promise of the desire. This is an explosive kind of situation and it could lead to disaffection with consumption. I think ultimately it could lead people to say, oh, well, my desires can't be fulfilled by consuming commodities. It can only be fulfilled by asserting freedom through production, you know, freedom through the creation of a a new world, a different kind of reality. But I think the, the radical left has been really bad at identifying with that pretty common everyday desire that people have to find fulfillment through consumption because we recognize the inadequacy of all the consumable objects. And I think this is especially true when the commodities pretend to be political. Uh, and this was certainly the case with films like Avatar, right? Where we know how to critique them for their inadequacy from the standpoint of the politics that we would want to advance. So we hate the film for, you know, it's uncritical woman as prize plot device, or we hate the film for the presumption that people with disabilities uh, should want to be saved from their circumstance. We especially, we especially hate the fact that the film reiterates a kind of white savior complex that people had pointed out was very similar to films like Dances with Wolves or The Last Samurai. Now, all of these things are true, but at the exact same time, this became the top grossing film of all time at the time that it came out, that masses of audiences had been fundamentally transformed by the experience of it, and they in some cases set up peer counseling hubs for themselves online in order to deal with the depression they experienced after seeing the film. Meanwhile, indigenous people all over the world, including in Palestine, actively embraced the film and its images and its story as part of their own anti-colonial resistance to uh, to occupation and to resource extraction. So during the demonstrations that happened weekly in Berlin, in Palestine, uh, demonstrators dressed up as the alien figures from Avatar in order to draw attention to just how real the thing that people had seen in the theaters was and how close to home it was that it was happening on this planet all the time. Other indigenous groups reached out directly to James Cameron to say, yo, look, this thing is happening here too. So it was interesting to see anti-colonial movements, indigenous movements all around the world actively trying to make use of this uh, popular story that had become so resonant for so many people. But meanwhile, on the radical left, especially in America, in the US, we ended up being pretty satisfied with imagining that just writing like scathing indictments of the film's inadequacy and posting them on our blogs or whatever was somehow a revolutionary strategy. I think it's clear that it's not. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have critiques of the film, but at the same time, I think it does require that we begin to understand what desires had led people to identify with the film, despite its inadequacies, and how those desires could be related to, how they could be decoupled from the uh, object resolution, the film itself, so that they could be emancipated and pushed in another direction. So to think about how this might happen in practice, 
for the next time a film like Avatar comes out, for instance, I think rather than writing scathing indictments on our blogs, it might have been more interesting if we had gone out to the theaters and tried to leaflet people as they were leaving screenings, saying, yo, if you think this is bad, you should come out to, to Standing Rock. You know, there's a fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline or whatever else it is that's happening at that moment. Um, and suggest to people that there's another way to find the realization of the desire that animated their attachment to the film, especially when because they themselves recognize that the film itself is inadequate, that it doesn't ultimately satisfy, but maybe revolutionary politics might. Our final audio clip features Bill Fletcher Jr., a labor historian and activist. In this portion of our discussion, we ended with Bill Fletcher Jr.'s thoughts on where he sees hope and possibilities, both in the labor movement and beyond. By analogy, we're building a new army. The army that existed with its general staff, its weaponry, has to a great extent been defeated. It's been a slow motion defeat that I would argue started in roughly 1948 um, and really took an uptick around 1978 on. And, but it's been a slow motion one. And it goes back to the thing about jumping off the Empire State Building. Um, because we hadn't hit rock bottom, people didn't necessarily feel it as a defeat. And so, so I begin with that, yeah, we, we were basically defeated. And that in the aftermath of this defeat, this strategic defeat, there have been, uh, there's been rethinking about the nature of strategy, the nature of organization. And so you see that, as we talked about earlier, in what's going on among teachers in many places, Chicago Teachers Union, United Teachers of LA, number of other places. You saw that in the, um, uh, the Teamsters strike against UPS in 1997. Um, you saw it to some extent even in the, the, the response by the National Football League Players Association to the lockout. You see experiments that are underway in a sort of asymmetrical warfare against capital. So that's why I remain optimistic, because I see these different things that are going on, uh, various forms of resistance, just like there's resistance against Trump. But here's the caveat. Uh, resistance cannot be sporadic. It can't be disorganized. It can't be uncoordinated. That in the absence of a cohesive plan and narrative, we will lose. We will lose gloriously, but we will lose. Um, the Native Americans, the First Nations, in the first decade of the 19th century, had a very unique opportunity to defeat the United States under the leadership of Tecumseh. 
And for a variety of reasons, that didn't work out. He was killed. And the Native Americans were never able to regain the moment that existed around 1811, about 1813, 14. Um, and history is very brutal. It's like when you lose that moment, you don't get that moment back. And so what we have to understand is that we do not have endless amounts of time, not just because the planet is heating up, but because our opponents through repression, technology, and other things are weakening the working class. And that is why vision and organization and strategy becomes essential if we're going to turn this around. I remain confident that we can do it. But one thing I will say is this, while I'm optimistic, I'm no fool. I don't believe that victory is inevitable. Only thing inevitable is death. It's the only thing inevitable. So I don't rest comfortably about any of this. Um, you know, I grew up in an era where many of us on the left thought it may take a long time, but victory was inevitable. I, I'm not there now. I think that we will bring about victory. Or it's over. Well, with those parting words, I want to say I really appreciate your time, your insights, very brilliant, and it was a pleasure talking to you on Labor Road. Sure, it was uh, my pleasure. 